It is a joy that we get to sing of amazing grace. And tonight, and Walker has just read for us in Mark chapter 5, we get to see amazing grace on display. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather. We thank you for your revealed word. We submit ourselves under your word. Teach us by your word, we do pray. In Christ's name, amen. The conversion of C.S. Lewis is a tale of friendship and persistence. This was the case when Tolkien and Lewis met at Oxford at an Oxford faculty meeting in 1926. Lewis was not yet a Christian, while Tolkien a devout Catholic. Their friendship got off to a rocky start, as Lewis recorded in their first meeting in his diary by writing, no harm in him, only needs a smack or so. Yet over time, their love of all things related to Norse mythology drew them together. Hugo Dyson was someone Lewis had only come to know more recently. When they met, Dyson was teaching at the University of Reading. Lewis wrote his lifelong friend, Arthur Greaves, about Dyson, describing him as, quote, a man who really loves truth, a philosopher and a religious man. There was an immediate gravitational pull between, towards Dyson with Lewis telling Greaves, quote, having met him once, I liked him so well that I determined to get to know him better. Their evening together one night started with dinner, then moved to Addison's walk, and finally this trio of men settled back in Lewis's room. The last hurdle for Lewis in his intellectual ascent to Christianity, was the concept of redemption. Christ's death on the cross as atonement for sinful humanity seemed to him either, quote, silly or shocking. No doubt, C.S. Lewis was a reluctant convert. Tolkien tapped out of the conversation at 3 a.m. and went home. Lewis and Dyson continued talking for another hour before going to bed at 4 a.m., Over the course of that long evening, Tolkien and Dyson rendered their most important services as friends by making Lewis see that the idea of sacrifice in the pagan myths that Lewis so enjoyed were palatable to him. Yet the idea of sacrifice within the Christian story, with its accompanying meaning and significance, was not. Tolkien and Dyson were able to chaperone and guide Lewis into his realization that Christianity was, quote, a true myth, a myth working on, on us in the same way as the others, but with this tremendous difference, that it really happened. C.S. Lewis, as I said, was a most reluctant convert, as he had to get over many intellectual hurdles. But nonetheless, the Spirit of God prevailed on him. And from a most reluctant convert in C.S. Lewis, we will now see tonight... In Mark chapter 5, a most unlikely convert. And I want you to notice here, as you've provided you with an outline, verses 1 through 5, the description of the scene that we encounter here. I want us to notice here that in this description, we are coming off the night at sea, where the previous section, Jesus calms the megastorm. They have gone through the night, they have sailed across the Sea of Galilee, Jesus and his disciples arrive safely on the other side, the southernmost 
part of the Sea of Galilee, in the country of the Gerasenes, we would read. This is southeast of Capernaum, across the sea. And the disciples are no doubt still awestruck by what they had previously come off of. You don't just go through this megastorm and see the God-man, the creator, calm everything in an instant and get over that very quickly. So they're still processing this miracle at sea as this next miracle takes place the following day. No doubt when they get back to Capernaum, they're thinking, we have a story to tell, except this fish story is true. We see here in verse 2, as they've arrived in the country of the Gerasenes, the description we have here, Jesus steps out of the boat, and he is immediately encountered by a very peculiar individual. One man that we see here is one with an unclean spirit who is, we see, living among the tombs. It is clear from verse 6 that this man is in these tombs off of the coast, and he sees the boats coming from a distance. And so as they're coming closer to the shore, he makes his way to them and runs up to them. I want us to take, us a, take a few minutes and consider this man. We don't have his name. Let's call him the outcast. These are some things that Mark provides for us with great detail, more detail than Matthew or Luke. This man is very, 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 I can't even stress enough, very important to Mark. Why he gives us all of these details. Notice here in verse 3, the outcast. He is among the tombs. He was not, this man was not suitable to be among the living. So he finds his place among the dead. The tombs were the caves. These were the, the burial grounds. It wasn't so nice as Quinesset Cemetery, but if you were to draw a parallel, this man lived in the cemetery. Outside the city, living in darkness, alone. We are given these details to pity this man. We don't know why or how he became possessed with all the demons. We don't have that information, but Mark no doubt wants us to have pity on this man as he takes us through this story. So first we see of this man in this description, this one that comes running up to Jesus, he is the outcast. But what else we would notice is that he is unapproachable. He is unapproachable. We read here that in verse 3, he lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore. Your heart needs to break for this guy. People would go and bind him up, shackle him to restrain him. Yes, no doubt he was a danger to society, but he was also neglected. He's unapproachable. He could not be bound anymore. What we can read from this text is he's been this way for some time. This bind him anymore. So at one time he was able to be bound, thus no longer. Not only is he unapproachable, he's uncontrollable. Also notice here, we read, For he had often been bound with shackles, verse 4, and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. This man has an uncontrollable strength and uncontrollable power. When you're chained up and you're out in the wilderness or out among the tombs, he would sit there and just seek to break these things, gnaw at these chains, bite them, whatever means necessary to break himself free. This is a hurting individual. 
This is somebody, obviously, we can see that is not in his right mind. His mental faculties are not working as they should. And a third thing we see, he's unapproachable, he's uncontrollable, and he is unnatural. He is unnatural, natural. Verse 5, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Nobody in their natural sound mind does this. It is unnatural for him. He is possessed by a a power outside of himself that causes him to do these things. What we can see here from the outcast, as I've said, he's not well. We are given these details here in verses 3 through 5 to pity the man. He's out of his mind. He smells. He's scarred. He's hideous. Luke records he does not wear clothes. He lives among tombs, and the worst of all, he's alone. He is alone. He is a man tormented by demons, as we shall see. He is rejected from society. He is deemed a danger and a threat to civilization. He must be the outcast. We must cast him out. You know, we like to go camping, and at night, when the kids are all sitting around the campfire, it's time for the spooky stories. It's time to, I don't know why we do that. We like to scare people. I mean, you're smiling and nodding. Yeah, you've done it too, right? No doubt this man was the tale of the spooky stories. No doubt they would tell the story of the crazy man up on the mountain, the crazy man in the tombs. You don't want to go out there at night, except this spooky story was real. He would be the 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 the, the the brunt end of maybe jokes, the old crazy man in the tombs, and people would hear him screaming and howling at night. This is the description that we have of a broken individual. From this description, verses 1 through 5, let's move to the confrontation that we see take place here. This is a beautiful story that we see. It is one that should soften, melt, break your heart, and rejoice. But before we get there, there must be confrontation. Notice here in verse 6, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. He makes his way to Jesus, but he's not going for healing. We notice that, we'll notice that as this dialogue between Jesus and the man or the demons possessing him takes place. He's not going for healing, but rather for a confrontation. But even as the demon-possessed man draws closer and closer to Jesus, as Jesus has gotten off the boat, he does what the wind and the waves must do. He submits and falls down before him. And then we have the first dialogue here. And crying out, verse 7, with a loud voice, we would read, What have you to do with me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God, I adjourn you by God. Do not torment me. There's many things we could notice right here. Matthew adds in his account, Do not torment, are you here to torment us before the time? Up until this point in Mark's gospel, the only people that have confessed Jesus as who he is are the demons. 
This is very important. What he's saying here with this tormenting here is, do not cast us or do not cast me into the abyss. Do not send us to hell now. There are many things we could point out here. This demon, this demon-possessed man, this demon speaking through the man, using his vocal cords to communicate with Jesus, Son of the Most High God. He recognizes Jesus' ability. Do not cast me or do not send us before our time. He recognizes Jesus' authority. He falls down before him. He recognizes Jesus' lordship. Brothers and sisters, demons make fine theologians. Very good theologians, but terrible disciples. They know, but they do not follow. They hate, they torment, and they wreak havoc. That's their job. They delight in sin. They rejoice in wrongdoing. It's important to note here, theology does not make one godly. Theology does not make you godly. What you do with what you know. We are to take theology and apply it. All theology is applied theology. I must take the things I know and let that work out in my life to produce a godliness in me. So, we have this Face-off here, another one of these confessions of the deity of Christ from the demons. And we have the reason why, verses 8 and 9, in this confrontation. The reason for the confrontation is that he knew that Jesus was there to cast him out. He was to be cast out of the man. This demon, legion, the many of them, had found a nice comfortable home, residing in the man, tormenting the man. But now we see Jesus speaks to the demon. Come out of the man, verse 8, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? Jesus knows his name. But certainly this is recorded that we might understand the magnitude of the face-off that is happening right here. Legion, for we are many. Legion, a legion was 6,000 soldiers, 6,000 Roman soldiers. Whether or not this man had 6,000 demons in him is not determinable. But what Mark wants us to see by recording this is that this man was severely tormented. And just as there was a great storm or a mega, mega storm, this is a mega demon that is faced here. Just as in the next section, there will be mega disease. And it's, a, it's it, as understanding your Bible, you look at the sections and the context surrounding it. And what Mark is showing us here is that Jesus has the power over nature, the power over demons, the power over disease. And there is nothing bigger or more powerful than Jesus. That's the point we're supposed to see here. That's why he faces off with legion. And even if it is 6,000 demons, it is no match for Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most High God. Verse 10 here, he begs him, the demon speaking through the man, that they might not be sent out of the country. This is peculiar. Why would a demon request to stay in the country? Listen, demons prefer geographical locations. That's no stretch here. That's simply what the text shows us. They are intelligent. They are opportunistic. You talk to somebody, maybe a missionary from Africa. 
or someone that is down in the, in the southern parts of South America, and they'll talk to you about heightened demonic activity. There are various places in our world where demonic activity is more centralized, and there is a heavier spirituality in that sense of that place. Go to a lot of third world countries. These things certainly exist here. This is true today. So at this point, we have this confrontation, this description of, of this tormented man by, by legion, this multitude of demons that have harassed and completely controlled the mental and physical faculties of this man who is out of his mind. And we are told all of this, verses 1 through 10, to set up this dramatic move that Jesus makes. And it's transformation. It is transformation. Verses 11 through 15. Jesus casts out the demons. He begged them earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us into the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned into the sea. We see here Jesus is expelling evil. Jesus is expelling the evil from the man. But even the unclean pigs cannot stand the unclean spirits. And they go and run off a cliff. Now, I, I will say to you, this is not a passage where we can have a full, full understanding of demonology. We have some insight into the workings of demons. But it does demonstrate for us here in this passage the first part of transformation in the life of anybody. We must destroy what is unclean. There must be a transfer from darkness to light. In terms of God's salvation, God must first take and remove the evil, unbelieving heart and replace it with the heart of flesh. A new heart replaces the evil, unbelieving one. And so for the first part of transformation, Jesus must work here and he must do away with the evil that possesses the outcast. But what are we to do with 2,000 pigs dying? I mean, we read about that, and does that make us sad? Those poor pigs? What did they do to deserve such a fate? I doubt we would see the Save the Pigs commercial where they have these cute little pigs and then the happy music and you want to adopt a pig. We don't really see those like you see the cute puppies. But nonetheless, why the pigs? I don't want to sound cold or indifferent in any way. I love bacon. Christmas ham is delicious. Why all those pigs? You see, to the Jew that was reading this passage, they would have no problem. The unclean spirits to the unclean animals. But also, this reveals, just side note, this, this Gerasene, he's a Gentile. And the pigs, the herdsmen of the pigs, they're Gentiles. These are all Gentiles, and that will play a big role as we would wrap this up. But we are not told exactly why Jesus allows this to happen. We must understand this, though. When we are unclear of something, we, we, we go back to what we do know. Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is good. Jesus knows what he's doing. But the response of the people in verse 
17 might give us a clue to why all these pigs died. More on that in a bit. That's not the point of the passage. But what we do see here in verse 14 in this transformation is that these events, everything that is happening, is not happening in isolation. There are observers. There are people seeing this take place. 2,000 pigs running off a cliff is no small thing. The crazy man who's living up on the mountain that everybody knows all crazy in the tombs is no longer crazy. Something dramatic is happening before the very eyes of the people. The herdsmen see it. It gets noticed by the Gentile herdsmen, verse 14, and they flee. They run, and they go back to town, and they say, hey, something Something, we, 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 can't, we can't explain what's happening out here, but something's going on over here on the shores of Galilee, among the hills. You need to come out here and see it. I, we can't explain this, but we got no more pigs, and the crazy man's not crazy. Just come, come and see for yourself. So here they come. This crowd makes their way back. Some time passes. No doubt this doesn't happen in five minutes. This is an all-day affair. That's taking place here. Some time passes. The disciples and and Jesus are no doubt ministering to this once outcast man. Hey, who's got a garment for him? Put some clothes on this man. Let's give him something to eat. Is is there any water for this man? Let us care for, for this man who has once lost his mind, once out of his mind, but has now been touched by amazing grace. Once was a wretch, once a wretch, but thus no longer was blind but now can see. And so the people come back to observe this radical transformation that has taken place. And they see the man sitting there. He's not cutting himself. He's not screaming. He's not terrorizing anybody. He's quiet. He's in his sound mind. And he's got clothes on. And what we read here was that they leaped for joy and there was great excitement. No, we don't see that. They were terrified. They were afraid because these superstitious Gentiles were terrified at the power of Jesus. They weren't scared about the power that possessed the man. No, they were more terrified by the power of the one who could heal the man. But for this man, think about him. Think about how his day started that morning, like every other day. Running around the mountains, no clothes on, hungry, screaming, just a a, a terror to himself and to anyone that might come around. He sees boats coming from him a distance, and it's his first time in quite some time that there might be any type of interaction. But he's not going there for, hey, let's have a talk. I miss people. He's going to torment people. Except he is encountered with the God-man that day. The greatest possible person that he had ever come across came to him that day. How did his day start? A mess. How does his day end? Fantastic. A beautiful day. The greatest day of his life. Now, we can't all pinpoint the day of our conversion. I know I can, but some of us were saved at a very young age But if you are someone that remembers that day that God transformed your life, that you heard the gospel as though you had never heard it before, 
though you had heard it many times before, and that conviction of sin hit your heart, and you were changed, and you were saved, and you believed on Christ, and you were given faith. It's the greatest day of your life. The day that I was blind, but now I see. The day that I passed from life into death, and God in his kind providence and grace showed me amazing grace. There is no greater day in your life. Well, there will be one when faith turns to sight. But until that day, the greatest day is the day that God said, you are mine. Welcome to the family. This man went from outcast to accepted by Jesus, unapproachable to gentle and approachable. He, was un- he went from uncontrollable to peace and a sound mind, from unnatural behavior to supernatural transformation. Brothers and sisters, when the gospel comes, in the power of the Holy Spirit with full conviction, there is only one explanation. It is not behavior modification. It is supernatural transformation. No psychology will ever be able to pinpoint or identify what occurs. No science textbook, nothing. It is supernatural transformation. So how do you think this man felt as he's sitting there with the disciples and he's with Jesus? Joy overwhelming joy. There are people that love me, that care about me, that want to be with me. Look at me. I've got scars all over me. I was a torment. I was a wreck to people. I scared the children. I terrorized so many people. Yet these 12 and him, they love me. They've shown me kindness. This man tasted mercy. In grace, whereas the man was accepted, loved, and embraced by Jesus, we also see the equal and opposite reaction from the people who gathered to see what happened. So from transformation, we would see rejection. Rejection here in verses 16 and 17. Oh, it is, it is just terrible how they respond and those, had, those who had seen it, they saw everything. These are the herdsmen. They saw, they saw the man, the, the demons cast out, the pigs go. And they saw what happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Afraid of Jesus. Once the events were explained to them, all the people said, you need to leave. You need to leave. What could have been a time of mass conversion actually turns into mass rejection due to the hardness of heart. Here's the problem. They cared more about pigs than people. They were more upset that they lost their pigs than they cared about the person. Here's the problem even that we could see. Instead of falling before Jesus as Lord and God, they harden their hearts towards Christ. The pigs are a representation of their material wealth, their livelihood, their status quo, the comforts of life. Blinded by the things of this world, they failed to see the work of God among them, and they begged Jesus to leave. The only person you would ever, never, ever beg to leave If we are in the presence of Christ, we want to be like Peter. I'm making tents. I'm staying here. No, this is great. God is with us. No. 
blinded by the things of this world, they do not see what is right before their eyes. They ask him to leave. Oh, brothers and sisters, we do not want to be people that care more about pigs than people. That we care more about our own comfort and material wealth and my, my middle-class life in suburban Rhode Island at the expense of people. Our treasures are to be laid up in heaven. We labor for the kingdom. We labor for the souls of men and women. We give ourselves for the sake of people. We sacrifice for the good of others. The right, the right response they could have had is, says, yes, we lost our pigs, but we gained our brother. No. Selfishness led to rejection. Whereas they rejected Jesus, Jesus still showed these people grace by commissioning for them a missionary. Verse 18, verses 18 through 20. From the negative of rejection to the positive. As they reject Jesus, verse 18, this man is clinging to Christ. As he, as he was getting to the boat, Jesus took their rejection and said, okay, if that's what you want, that's what you'll get. Ooh, that's a terrible thing. That is an absolutely terrible thing. In rejecting of Christ, he obliges. Oh, I just, oh, I, I must give you all a warning. Whether it be here or whether it be anywhere else, in sharing the gospel, when the gospel is preached, one of two things occur. It is for the softening of the heart or it is the hardening of the heart. And we are either rejecting or accepting or embracing Christ every time we hear we do not want to get to the point of so hard-hearted that our rejection, in our rejection, Christ says, fine, let it be. Yet in this case, he does. He departs. He's to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been, verse 18, who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. There's a lot of begging going on in this passage. And everyone's begging Jesus. It's a good thing to do, I guess. If you're a beggar, Go to Jesus. Jesus welcomes beggars. But they begged, he begged him that he might, go, might be with him. This is a totally natural thing for anyone to do that has been transformed by Christ is to be with Christ. This is the inclination of a disciple. But Jesus, again in his sovereignty and his goodness and knowing what he's doing, says, nope, you're not coming with me. This is strange. No, Jesus says, I've got a plan for you. I've got a mission for you. I didn't sail through the night through a storm to come down here to bring you back. I came down here through a storm for one reason, and it was you, that I might send you. That you might do something great for my name's sake. So Jesus reveals the plan to him. He tells him, go home. Go home to your friends. And tell them, verse 19, how much the Lord had done for you and how he has had mercy on you. What do you think that was like? As he takes this and he says, all right, I'm going to do it. We don't know how long he'd been away from his home, chained up in the mountains. But he's got his clothes on. He's in his right mind. He probably hasn't seen family or friends for a long time. And with a leap in his step, like, like Christian, when the, when the burden's released off of his back, as he 
sees the cross, embraces the cross, and he loses his burden. So this man, his burden has been set free, and he's going home. And he's going to see his family and his friends. And he can talk normal now. And he can have an intelligent conversation. And he's got a message for them. He goes walking up to the door that day and to his friend's house. And they see him coming from a distance. And they're thinking, oh, no. Who let him out? He broke the chains again. But he's got clothes on. What's going on here? As he gets closer and closer and people are kind of standoffish, he says, no, I have to tell you something. God is good. I have met the Savior. My life has changed. And they're, they're skeptical, like, is he, is he pulling a fast one on us? But no. But he's not happy. He's not, he's not content with doing this as any person who has been saved by Christ. They're not content with just telling one or two people. No, this man full of zeal, full of love for Jesus, passion for Christ, knowing where he had come from and where he is right now, we read here, he doesn't just go home to his friends, his small circle. No, we read in verse 20, he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. The Decapolis, this was a federation of 10 cities. This is on the east of the Jordan, uh, it's Gentile country. It's all Gentiles. And so this man starts in his home and he goes to his friends and he says, I still got a story to tell. What God has done for me, what Christ has done for me. And so he goes and becomes the traveling missionary to these ten cities. Christ has commissioned him. He could not keep silent. You know what's fascinating about this man that we don't have his name? In the Gospels, he's the first Gentile missionary. He's the first one to proclaim Jesus among the Gentiles. He was doing it before Paul was doing it. As Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, so this garrison man, this unnamed outcast, had a very special and important assignment. Archaeological records date back to the 5th century A.D., where they have uncovered uh, vibrant remains of, of, of vast churches in and among the Decapolis. Interesting, we, don't, we can't date it any further than that, but uh, no doubt this man led many to Jesus. Everyone marveled. Everyone marveled. This is fascinating. He just did what any ordinary Christian is to do. Proclaim Jesus. Tell everyone how much the Lord has had mercy on you. What has Jesus done for you? He is, this man is a most unlikely convert. But the reality is, so are you. So am I. If you think about our lives, if it wasn't for grace, we would not be here. Everybody is an unlikely convert. Whether you were born in a Christian home, or whether you're a madman running around the mountains without clothes on. An unlikely convert. And Jesus takes the unlikely converts so that all glory belongs to him. This man, he loved Jesus, he obeyed Jesus, he proclaimed Jesus, and everyone marveled. He was able to get an audience with many people. So, as we think about this unlikely convert how it started in the morning, and how it finished. I cannot wait to meet this brother in heaven. He's one of those unnamed men that you're walking down, and you're there, and 
I don't know how you'll figure it out, but, oh, you're the garrison? Yeah, that's me. I would love to hear the stories. I cannot wait to sit at his feet and hear how much the Lord had done for him. So what are some takeaways that we can see even from these 20 verses? Let me give you three. Three by way of application. First is the power of Jesus to heal this man. We read in Jeremiah 32, 17, Ah, Lord God, it is you who has made the, have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. We used to sing that, right? We believe that until we don't. What does this mean? It means that nobody is too far gone. There is not a soul that cannot be saved. Whether it be the heroin addict under the bridge or the homeless man. Or maybe somebody that comes into church late and causes a distraction. And we think we're not in your right mind. Nobody is too far gone. Nobody is outside of the healing touch and power of Jesus. This crazy man without clothes or the most hardened atheist. At one point, if you were to think about C.S. Lewis, you would have said, nope, not going to happen with that one. Let's go to the next. He's got too many intellectual hang-ups. Brothers and sisters, nobody is too far gone. Whether it's your prodigal child, whether it's that obnoxious coworker, whether it's your spouse, nobody is too far gone. So, never give up hope. Never give up hope on those people that you know that are in your life. Never stop praying for that person. Never think that God can't or that God won't save that person. Think about how many people had given up on this man in the tombs. Let's just lock him up and put him away until he dies. The power of Jesus to heal the man is a lesson for us. The unlikely convert. A second lesson we can see is the love of Jesus to seek this man. Luke 19, 20, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This man would never have come to Christ unless Christ first came to him. I started off telling you about how the disciples were coming off of the night that they would never forget, which turned into the day that they would never forget, which turned into a lesson that would stick with them for the rest of their lives. Jesus, why did we have to go out at night and face that entire storm that we almost died in? And it was so that Jesus would say, because I had an appointment with a garrison. Jesus went down here and crossed the Sea of Galilee for one reason, to meet this man, to heal this man. Jesus went to seek and save the lost. He knew what was to happen. He knew they would reject him. He knew he would get right back on that boat and sail right back up to Capernaum. We must understand this, brothers and sisters. Jesus is the hound of heaven. There's only ever been one seeker, and his name is Jesus. And he is forever on the rescue mission for sinners. He takes those who are lost. He gives them a home. He binds the broken. He heals the hurting. He straightens the crooked. He secures the sinner. And he gives his righteousness to the rebels. This man had a date with destiny. And on this day, he encountered the king. Jesus went out of his way to find this man.
So, you are to love the unlovely. We are to sacrifice ourselves. We should go out of the way to give ourselves for the outcast, the rejected, the despised of this world. Look at your friend group. Look at the people that you spend your time with. What do your circles look like? Does everybody look like you? Who sits at your table? How do we go out of our way to seek, to reach the unlovely, the hurting, the rejected, the despised of this world, the refuse of this world? It's not hard to slowly turn into a Pharisee when it comes to the people that we associate with. That's why we read in Romans, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Remember, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. There's nothing good about us. We are just sinners saved by grace. And then the third and final lesson we can see is the will of Jesus to commission this man. Elsewhere, we would read in Luke 14, the words of Christ, he says, go out quickly, as he's telling a story here, a parable, he says, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Here we go. Here's the outcast. Here's the rejected. Here's the, here's the, the marginalized, the least of these of the world. He says, bring them in. And the servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done, and there's still room. And the master said to the serpent, go out to the highways and to the byways and the hedges and compel the people to come in. You know who's on the highways and the byways? Those are thieves and robbers. Those are the terrible people. Those are the criminals and the drug addicts. Those are the least of these, the homeless. It says, compel them to come in that my house may be filled. Oh, we see the heart of God for the fatherless, for the least of these. Jesus commands his disciples to make disciples by proclaiming the mercy and grace of God. To spread the fame of Christ among our friends, among our towns, we are to compel people to come. So Christian, as you have been commissioned by the king, you have been brought in, that the love of Christ has been made manifest to you, we are commissioned by the king to make disciples, to give ourselves, to proclaim what the Lord has done for you in your life. So, let us be faithful. Let's trust Christ. Let us love Christ. Obey Christ. Proclaim Christ. Because if you are in Christ, you have a story to tell how much the Lord has shown mercy upon you. And as we do so and we are faithful, we watch Christ by the Holy Spirit draw in more of those unlikely converts for his glory. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this truth. Pray that you would help us, that we would be mindful of your mission in this world, how you saved this man who is so far gone in many minds. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would do the same to our friends, our co-workers, our loved ones, our family members, those that we cross paths with, our neighbors, Lord, that we would see you draw in many to know you, that they would be of a sound mind, transformed for your glory. And Lord, if it be your will that you would use us to be that means to tell of your grace and your mercy 
that they too might experience and know your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.